Welcome to Geographical Thinking. We share stories of people using GIS to illuminate their world and see what others can't. I'm your host, Guan Yu. Alec Miller is the president of Esri Canada. He's a pioneer in GIS with a very long view. He's been following and participating in the development of this technology for more than 35 years. He knows this subject in his bones and has traveled all over this country, showing it to others. He wants GIS to help make this country a better place to live. When the Johns Hopkins dashboard showed the world how GIS could help tracking COVID-19, Alec insisted his company does one for Canada, and it's still viewed every day. That kind of nimble thinking is why I asked him to tell me if the pandemic changed the perception of GIS and how it may have changed its future. Alec, welcome to Geographical Thinking. Thank you, Guan. Well, since the beginning of this pandemic, we saw a surge of GIS applications and different ways organizations leverage spatial geospatial tools. Would you share a story that really stood out for you? I think there's like two stories that have stood out for me. Uh, I think the first you've mentioned in the introduction was the idea that we all came together with uh, back when COVID started to rage. Was that we build out a dashboard uh, and use the Johns Hopkins as our inspiration, and as we sat around that conference room and and you and your colleagues and Chris and all the others, you know, furiously whiteboarded stuff, it, it amazed me how fast it came together, and the ability to of our team to reach out to our users across the country, and that our users were involved in collecting COVID data, and they were already starting to build their own dashboards. So to me, that was just a team just pivoting so quickly, and working under such intense pressure, and and so I know that our team building the dashboard we built was only a microcosm of what was going on in all organizations all across the country,、uh, but seeing the BC dashboard come together and the Newfoundland dashboard and and Gurdip Singh in in BC and and. Uh, the all the others across the country putting theirs together, I think that was a, a very moving moment for me that that our GIS community was able to pivot so quickly in New Brunswick, pivoting from、uh, being the head of the pivoting with the nine one one, you know, building out the next gen one nine one one to suddenly being the go to organization for gathering, curating, and publishing in near real time what was going on. So if I was to look to New Brunswick, also, they also didn't just collect, you know, dots on maps of COVID infections. They looked at trucks crossing the border, you know, movement of people. It was、uh, quite amazing. So,、um, so that was、uh, one thing that I found very、um, significant, motivating.、Uh, the second one came、uh, not too long after that when. Uh, our our people in in Ottawa got a call from Statistics Canada that they had been locked out of the government offices and all of the systems that they had built、uh, to prepare for the 2021 census were now inaccessible to them. The government didn't have enough VPNs. The v, the 1,500 VPNs they had for 290,000 government employees were forcing. People to work at night if they wanted access at all, and only for a few hours a night. So, our team worked with them to get them moved on to ArcGIS Online, 
So a SAS team set up the appropriate security. Uh, some of them went into the offices and got the data and migrated it to ArcGIS Online. And they started using ArcGIS Pro. And so the, 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 the speed at which the StatsCan team moved and learned a new product and learned a new way of thinking in using GIS in the cloud. And they successfully got the 2021 census done despite months of delays. So to me, I, I was very inspired by their ability to keep going and, and get something that's very important to all of us, which is the census of Canada done on time. Mm -hmm. A lot of these applications that uh, were spun up during pandemic are the first time some of our outsider communities first seen and heard of GIS. And now um, we have really started to show to the larger world of what GIS can do. Um, it, it, the GIS itself, it can be a very complex um, idea. Like how would you describe GIS to someone who has never heard about it before? Well, I, one of my favorite things is somebody, when, an air, when I'm on an airplane, says, what do you do? And, uh, and I have to explain it to them. So the first thing I do is always say, I'm in the mapping business. Uh, and they say, oh, what part of mapping? What, like Google? And I say, well, yes, but it's, it's technically called a geographic information system. It's an information system about our geography. You know, where do people live? How much tax do they pay? Where do the uh, electrical wires go? You know, where are the sewers? How do we maintain them? So I always try to explain it in terms of results of what people would want. They, they would think of maps helping their city do or their company. Uh, sometimes it's telling to them about a sales territory. Sometimes I can get incredibly lucky. Uh, like I did, I was sitting beside a fellow uh, in the, on the airplane when lightning struck the airport and they locked it down. We had to sit on the plane for an hour while a thunderstorm went through. So we had Wi-Fi and we had lots of time to, to discuss what we did. So when he asked me, I told him and he says, oh, I, I think he worked for CP and he said, oh, I think we use your software. And I said, you do and uh, in your organization. So he said, well, I don't know that much about it. What does it do? I was fortunate enough to have a story map uh, on my laptop uh, where I, I logged into the web and it was the one that our education group did with University of Toronto on transit in Toronto and it's all about trains. So it, it's a beautiful map that talks about how accessibility to transit, how many people have accessibility to jobs, where are the busiest subway stations. And in the case of uh, CP, they have a major rail line going through the city. So we started looking at that. So the map became very much a focal point for a discussion that was very relevant to him as an executive of CP. So the whole thing uh, ended up spiraling into a longer term discussion, multiple phone calls with him, meetings with the CP CIO out in Calgary. And it was, um, but it all starts out from that very simple premise is that we make maps that help us understand our world better. And we put information on that map that's relevant to the decision that we're making. And, and I think that's the, the thing that resonates most with people when I describe it to them. So the secret that I'm hearing here is to start with something simple and then make it relevant for your audience. Exactly. I, I think if you, 
if you try to start explaining, oh, it's points, lines, and polygons, and we join the attribute table to, to a database, and then you put your things in the database and you symbolize in the database, they go, what? And, and it, it's, it's, you know, when somebody asks you what time it is and you launch into the history of watch building, uh, it, it's, you know, that technical people tend to get too technical too quickly. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I was fortunate enough that my mother was a high school teacher and was very good at explaining complex things. You Simply. always say that one thing that differentiates Esri's technology with other, maybe other mapping solutions is this community that we're building. And you put a lot of emphasis on building communities, helping people to connect, to, to work towards the same goal. So let's talk about it. Um, can you share some stories uh, of communities that GIS has been leveraged and has been pivotal in what they're doing? Sure. So before I mention a specific community, the very idea of GIS is that we build an information system about our shared geography. And many organizations work on that same shared geography. So I will give you an example right away of one of the earliest communities uh, was in New Brunswick, the Department of Natural Resources, bought the, our very first system sold anywhere in the world, our info for forest inventory management. And they quickly pulled together a community of the Department of Natural Resources, Irving, the big forestry company, uh, Fraser Timber, and, and they, th those three organizations quickly started working together. And in their case, there was already a paper process where the company had to put together a five and 20 year forest management plan and submit it. Uh, but they, over a relatively short period of time, found that the GIS let them iterate back and forth and they were able to make it a much better and more interactive plan. But it wasn't very long before they, they needed to understand, okay, well, who owns the forested lands? You know, we've got the polygons of species type, wood type, and we have the streams. So uh, we need the uh, boundaries of the properties. Well, they were in another department of government uh, running on another technology. So they quickly brought them together and started putting in the boundaries. And then, the wildlife people in natural resources uh, said, well, the forest, you know, clear cutting the forest is bad for wildlife habitat or cutting too close to the streams is damaging the salmon habitat. So this community grew out of one department digitizing the geography, uh, which included the forest cover for the forest inventory so they could see how much wood they have, but it also included all the streams which there were regulations around not cutting nearby. It had the roads, so it knew where they had to leave the curtain of uncut trees so people would still see the forest and not a big clear cut. Uh, it's a visual thing. but um, So this community has grown and grown and grown over decades. Um, I, I would say that's one example of, of a very long time community built around uh, geography. Um, another interesting one is the Missing Children's Society of Canada, which uh, tries to find kids who have gone missing, but the missing criteria hasn't been enough to do an Amber Alert. There were only about 50 Amber Alerts in Canada last year, but there were over 43,000 kids went missing. So uh, they put together an application that let people who were searching for these missing kids post it. Uh, post uh, the, the sightings they might have had. It let them calculate how far some might have driven uh, in six hours after they were reported missing. 
But uh, more importantly, um, they they work to have Public Safety Canada and the Canadian Association of the Chiefs of Police make it the official system uh, for recording missing children that didn't meet the alarm, Amber Alert criteria. So that was a pretty big community focusing in on something quite specific that is very, you know, a lot, everyone can, and can you know, empathize with people who have, whose children have gone missing. And it, it's probably the worst thing that can happen to anybody in, in their life. So we, we, we know that's a good thing. I think a third example um, is what we see this happening quite a few places across the country. Uh, but I think we're the best place I know of where they've had an incredible integration of a community is the York Info Partnership. So this is uh, York Region. It's a municipal government, uh, regional government north of Toronto. It has nine local governments, and three of them are big, uh, the city of Vaughan and Markham and uh, Richmond Hill. But then there are six smaller communities, and three of them are rural. So they're very different, uh, but they have worked together to create uh, several systems. One of them is called All Pipes. So local governments look after the sewers, but they affect each other. So they, they, they've created a, a collaboration which lets them share uh, the pipes for each of the nine municipalities into a single integrated view. And uh, they've now started to collaborate on performance of the, of the, of the water, sewer lines, and they're, all, they're doing many other things. Uh, they also are collaborating on local and regional planning, which is a huge issue. Um, governments like Toronto wiped out their regional government, and it, it, they're struggling with this idea of what is a regional plan and what's a local plan. So, um, and so, and also some of the smallest municipalities in in York Region, like East Golanbury, are the most innovative in their use of it. So, uh, that's impressed me tremendously of how they've coordinated and, and created that community. So Alec, from the very get-go of GIS, it helped communities coming together and working towards their common goals. And in the past decades, GIS itself has come a long way. Um, let's think about when it was just invented is this niche tool that are used by highly trained experts. Uh, for now, we're thinking about GIS users is quite a large audience. So what have been the disruptive forces that pushed the evolution of GIS? Well, that's a very tough question because there have been so many. But uh, I think I could pinpoint uh, back to the very beginning. Uh, I was very fortunate to know Roger Tomlinson quite well. He was the inventor of GIS. He coined the term uh, to give a technology name to a system for building a new, an inventory at land in Canada. It was called the Canada Land Inventory, was the uh, in business problem, but he called it the Canadian Geographic Information System. And he invented topological overlay, which is letting you take what had been previously layers of translucent plastic, where they would put the forest on one and the land use in another and the you know, soil type on another, and overlay them and then draw out where the, the three of them were the most advantageous. So good soils on south facing slopes with uh, lots of moisture and you know, lots of uh, topsoil. So the, they did this for the whole country. So the breakthrough for them was the mainframe computer and the ability to handle data. They had to digitize it. So the big breakthroughs were the digitizing board, uh, the, the graphics, computer graphics screen, one of his associates uh, 
Ray Boyle from the University of uh, Saskatchewan in in Saskatoon, University of uh, yeah Saskatoon. I've, I've forgotten right now. He he was from Saskatoon, and he invented the graphics terminal in 1959. So the late 50s, early 60s, when Roger did the CGIS, was a huge one. Um, I think the the next big one, of course, was uh, the commercialization of GIS and the commercialization of mapping, and that happened with Esri and Intergraph both being founded in 1969. And, uh, and, but, but it was from 1969 until 1983 before Arc Info appeared. That was the first commercial product from Esri. And that was enabled by the mini computer. Uh, it was affordable. Prior to that, the computers had been too expensive. And uh, graphics uh, terminals you know, when I graduated from university in 1979, a color graphics terminal was about $250,000. And, and by the mid-80s, they were down into the $20,000. And we considered that incredibly cheap. So I think the idea of affordable departmental computing brought that, that, that second wave of GIS, and that's where New Brunswick came in. Uh, the, the next big wave was really... Um, the kind of more democratization of GIS initially through the Unix workstation, which let an individual have the whole GIS in their computer. But that really didn't take off until the PC was capable of handling it. So um, when Windows got uh, Windows NT, for those old enough to remember it, it stood for new technology. It was a modernized version of Windows that could run at the time Arc Info. And so the PC really let, let a lot of people get more access to GIS and be able to use it for small organizations, small consulting firms. Uh, I think the next thing that happened uh, was the web. And the, the web was a big breakthrough because geography is a shared uh, space that we all belong to. And the web allows us to share that geography in a shared electronic environment. Prior to then, we'd print maps and send them off to another department, or you'd take a nine-track tape or maybe a, a, a disc and put your shape file on it and send it to them. So the, the web uh, has probably been back with the mainframe computing on its own, been the biggest thing that's gone forward. Um, I, I think the, the web has also enabled us to create the latest uh, you know, software as a service. It's allowed us to, so now GIS is available online. I think, it, you know, it's hard. You can't really ignore the, the consumerization of mapping either. Like Google and, and Apple and Microsoft and, and others that went before them in, in making maps, simple maps available to the public really caught the public's imagination. So that has helped us tremendously in explaining you know, it was like that question you had before, you know, what do you say when people ask you what you do and you say mapping and they say, well, they say like Google Maps, the public understands what a digital map is today. And prior to that, they really didn't. So I, I think uh, more recently um, has been really the move to cloud computing. It isn't, you know, the, the web was about connecting our own computers to each other. And, and that's expensive to maintain. It's hard to to, uh, to keep them up and running all the time. Uh, you know, security is a problem. So the emergence of the huge cloud computing giants like Amazon and Microsoft and, and Google has allowed the GIS 
professional to concentrate on what they're good at, which is thinking about geography, geographical thinking, using the geographic approach to solve problems and not worry about keeping their server up and secure because it's hosted in the cloud. So I think, to me, those are the the big things. Uh, I guess the last thing is the almost the democratization of app development through low code or no code development. People can just go in and build a very sophisticated system with no programming experience. They, they just click on buttons and they customize their experience in a way that democratizes it even more. Uh, you no longer need the programmer. You know, the programmer is still needed to build the tools that allow the person to do you know, no code development, but that's pretty significant. Yeah, that's a contributing factor to all of these apps we see during the pandemic and hopefully after. Very so, much so. The, the dashboard, the, the fact that they rapidly put up these dashboards without coding uh, showed it's just amazing. What do you predict as the next milestone and what do you think are the contributing forces? I think going forward, um, one of the, one of the giant changes in the last ten years, uh, beyond far beyond GIS, has been the explosive emergence of social media, and the ability of people having an identity that they uh, are recognized as a member of the Facebook community, or you're a member of another community. So you have digital identity in a in a system that goes beyond your family, beyond your organization, beyond your email provider. And to me, the significance of, of, of Facebook and that, that identity is you, you can now share vast amounts of information. I think that will also emerge in the business and professional GIS community where we will get identity and it's my job to look after this piece of geography. It's my job to look after parcels in East Gwillimbury where it's my job to look after you know, sewer lines in, in King Township. And I will have identity and people will recognize me for that. And uh, I will share my data with them and they will share their data with me. And they may be another organization, but it will become a person within that organization. So I don't have a clear you know, sense of how that's going to happen. Uh, we've changed our licensing over the last 10 years to go from, you know, a license for my desktop PC, oh, and a license for the four cores on my server. It, we introduced as part of ArcGIS Online the idea of a named user. And that named user was for two purposes. One was licensing and the other was security and, and all the variety of things that are needed. But I can see that morphing into an identity beyond the organization with some kind of official stamp. So if we can get there, that then lets us share our data in a much more formal way through what is being called geospatial infrastructure. So that's the first one. I think another big one is going to be much more automation in keeping data up to date through things like the Internet of Things. We're starting already to see our, our tools being used to capture real-time information, uh, like um, changing traffic lights and traffic moving through intersections or vehicles moving around or a variety of things, uh, snowplows, where the snowplow has been. And those have been 
sort of relatively rare up to now, but I think that will become universal. Uh, ultimately, there's going to be some business drivers that will require us to keep track of vehicles, you know, so that we can deal with traffic congestion or for congestion pricing or as electric cars come in, we'll want to track, we can't charge them the gas tax. They don't use gas. So how do you, how do you, what do you use as a proxy for that? You know, so you could use GPS based road towing and keep it secure and, and make it private. But those things would result in vast increase in our knowledge of how the transportation network works. Right. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll keep our eyes out for this convergence of our virtual identity in the GIS community, as well as a more a smarter and more nimble infrastructure. Thanks for sharing your stories and spending time with us on geographical thinking. My pleasure. Thank you. Alec Miller, president and co-founder with his wife, Mary Charlotte Miller of Esri Canada. Thanks for joining me on Geographical Thinking. I'm Guan Yu. This podcast is brought to you by Esri Canada, a technology company that empowers people and organizations by the science of wear. Bye for now. Bye for now.